1: Hi, everyone. Um, welcome back to the Diplomatic History Channel here at New Books Network. I'm your host, Grant Gollub. Uh, I'm an Ernest May Fellow in History and Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School, and I am absolutely delighted to be joined today uh, by Susie Colborn, who is the Associate Director of the Program in American Grand Strategy um, at the Sanford School of Public Policy at Duke University. Um, Susie is a diplomatic and international historian, uh, and she specializes in the history of the Cold War with a focus on NATO, the politics of European security, and the role of nuclear weapons in international politics and society. Um, Prior to Susie being at Duke, she had fellowships at uh, Yale University and uh, Johns Hopkins University, and she has her PhD in history from the University of Toronto. Um, So today we're going to be talking about um, her first uh, solo-authored book, which is called Euro Euromissiles, uh, The Nuclear Weapons That Nearly Destroyed NATO, uh, it was published in November 2022 with Cornell University Press. Um, Susie's also the editor of The Nuclear North, um, which she co-edited um, with Tim Sale, which uh, looks at the history of Canada in the Atomic Age, and she's also written uh, numerous peer-reviewed um, articles in some of the leading um, academic uh, journals out there. So Susie's very prolific author. Um, so we're very very happy to have her uh, on the pod today. So Susie, um, thank you so much for coming on.
0: Thank you. It's wonderful to be here.
1: So I think a great place for us to start um, with. Uh, hopefully this is not a deceptively <laughs> deceptively difficult question, but um, I'm hoping you could tell us what what is a euro missile? What exactly is that for any of our listeners who are wondering what that term even means?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. So, the term Euro missiles is a sort of classic portmanteau, right? Uh, they are a group of missiles that were stationed in Europe and that would threaten other parts of Europe. And so the jargon of nuclear weapons, for anybody who has dabbled in this subject, uh, knows this, can be really complicated and filled with acronyms, uh, but these were variously known as theater nuclear forces or TNF because they would be used in the European theater, or later known as intermediate range nuclear forces or INF, uh, a name change that happened in part because the Europeans did not appreciate being reminded that they lived in a Potential theater of nuclear war, uh, and so in the in the popular lexicon, they were often referred to as Euro missiles, sort of encapsulating the the fact that there was this clearly European dimension. But of course, the the weapon systems themselves. Uh, so I talk about three as sort of the heart of the book, uh, the Pershing twos the ground launch cruise missiles, and then the Soviet SS-20s, there was no reason why they could only be used in Europe. Uh, and of course, there's an interesting piece of the story that is about the the threat the SS-20s posed to US allies in Asia uh, mm. as well.
1: Yeah, that was that was going to be my next question, whether these missile systems or weapon system were deployed in other parts of the world, but you've already answered that. So, okay, great. Um, so we, we've clarified what Euro missiles are. So um, I was wondering if you could talk to us about, um, sort of give us a, a broad overview of what exactly the quote-unquote Euro missile crisis is. Um, some of our older listeners might have actually lived through that, especially if they were living in Europe at the time, so uh, they might be intimately familiar with it. Um, but even for those folks, what exactly was this crisis all about, um, and, and really what sort of brought it to a, what brought it to a head uh, in the 1970s and 80s?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. And so there is this popular shorthand out there of, of the Euro missiles crisis. But one of the points that I make in the book is that actually, when you start to dig into the history of the 1970s and 1980s, there are crises everywhere. Some of them are large, some of them are small, uh, some of them are routine and recurring, others of them are fundamentally new. And there's this sort of constellation or complex of crises that surrounds the Euromissiles. And so the the story that I tell in the book is one that traces the rise and fall of the arms race over these theater nuclear forces, intermediate range nuclear forces, pick your jargon. Uh, And so I start in the... Uh, in the 1960s, in the aftermath of the Cuban Missile Crisis and the Berlin Crisis, when the situation in Europe is really starting to stabilize into an uneasy status quo. And then the book follows this rise and fall of the arms race over the Euro Missiles uh, through to the very end of the Cold War, uh, past the signing of the INF Treaty, uh, which did away with the Euro Missiles in 1987, through the fall of the Berlin Wall. Uh, and and indeed up to the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, but if we come back to this idea of crisis, right? What is the issue really about? What are the potential sources of crisis? To me, the the story of the Euromissiles missiles is really one that is a story about the fissures and fault lines baked into the structure of the post nineteen forty five order in particularly Western Europe, but the transatlantic order. And so at various points in in that history, you have uh, fundamental questions about whether the United States is going to remain committed to the defense of Europe, whether the United States is a trustworthy ally to defend uh, its partners and allies in Western Europe, whether the West Germans are going to be loyal allies who stick with and support NATO as an alliance, whether the Soviet Union is really uh, still a threat to uh, to the NATO allies. And, and then the sort of big question, the cloud hanging over all of it is whether or not it is sustainable for NATO as an alliance to secure the peace by threatening to unleash nuclear war. And so there is this uh, fundamental anxiety and set of questions and crises that arise about how credible it is to do that, uh, and whether it's politically palatable and sustainable over the long haul.
1: So, what what sort of to sort of unpack a little bit sort of the the arms race over uh, Euro missiles or. You know theater theater uh, nuclear missiles what drives the superpowers to start building these as new weapon systems when they already have. uh, Various means of delivering nuclear payloads that could annihilate both countries, why do they feel the need to actually build um, these um, closer intermediate range uh, ballistic missiles in the first place.
0: Yeah, it's it's a good question, and, and so when we think about locating the sources of an arms race, I think I conform to some stereotypes about what historians how historians answer these questions to say that it's complicated and there are a number of different factors uh, <laughs> involved. But but there are a, a few major ones that stand out. So there is a tech, technological dimension about research and development, right? You there is a lot of um, a lot of advanced technology involved in making nuclear weapons. And so sometimes it is just about what in your research and development and procurement process is available and is actually working, right? That might be usable and able to be deployed. So there, there's a whole story about a research and development that I only touch on very briefly in the book, but it certainly shapes the, uh, the options open to policymakers. But I think there's also a a broader logic of how the Cold War is being waged that shapes the kinds of weapons that are appealing and makes European weapons particularly appealing. So I don't think I will shock any scholar who has worked on Cold War Europe to say that one of the most common tools in the Soviet playbook was to try and drive a wedge between the United States uh, and its Western European allies, to separate the North Americans from from the Western Europeans, right, drive a wedge into the very heart of NATO. And intermediate or theater-range nuclear weapons were a very good source of leverage to do that because they could threaten Western European capitals, but would not threaten the United States or Canada. And so it posed these larger questions about whether NATO's strategy, whether the defense of Western Europe would become decoupled from that of the United States. Uh, and so so there's a lot of political leverage there, right? If we think about the the ways Nuclear weapons are used in international politics, right? There is a coercive element, a political blackmail element uh, that is potentially appealing. And and so the range that that European focus gives can provide a little bit of incentive to do so. Um, But one of the other pieces of the puzzle uh, and part of the reason why I ended up taking the story back to the 1960s is because there is also uh, an interesting precursor in the origins of of this arms race which is about how arms control in fact shapes the playing field on which the superpowers are competing and so by that i mean that the way that the united states and the soviet union did arms control in the late 1960s and early 1970s focused on limiting strategic weapons in fact, channeled, created circumstances where it channeled the arms race into Europe. Because by introducing caps on strategic weapons, it left, and the way that they defined strategic weapons in ways that left out forward-based systems in the U.S. arsenal that were deployed in Western Europe, these are air-launched or sea-launched capabilities, and also leaving out Soviet uh, medium-range and intermediate-range ballistic missiles, it meant that they de facto sort of created this other class of weapons, right, in, in the European theater, and left that competition open. And so... When the Soviet Union in the mid 1970s starts to introduce the SS-20, a, a new, more advanced medium-range missile system, it's entirely permissible under the the existing arms control regime, uh, and and it it fits with the way Soviet R and D is working at the time. Uh, There's some speculation about whether the SS-20 could actually be upgraded back to being a strategic, uh, a strategic weapon, but right. So there is this, uh, this sort of architecture in place that incentivizes channeling that competition uh, into the European theater. But then of course, the introduction of new Soviet missiles triggers a whole, uh, Renewed set of angst about whether NATO's strategy is viable, whether the extended deterrence provided by the United States is really going to be enough to protect Western Europe. And then NATO begins a whole new round of debates about how best to make sure the strategy that they have in place after 1967, a strategy known as flexible response, that envisions this broad system of escalation, of escalatory options. How do you make that viable? And ultimately, right, the solution that they settle on is this two-pronged approach where they are going to, on one hand, deploy new ground-based missiles to Western Europe. So those are the Glikums and Pershing IIs. Uh, and then on the other hand, they're going to pursue arms control negotiations with the Soviet Union to secure, try and secure reductions on those same theater systems, um, and of course, in practice, that means the United States is going to pursue arms control negotiations with the Soviet Union.
1: So there's a lot to a lot to unpack there, a lot of really great stuff. Um, I, I want to first talk to you a little bit about what NATO's sort of military strategy is in Europe, obviously vis-a-vis the Soviet Union because I think then this gets into some of the divides that you were just sort of um, implying about, the way that the sort of within the Western bloc about the way that the United States was pursuing arms control, because, you know, as you said, this then, because they were only focusing on strategic weapon systems, this then sort of allowed the arms race to then then sort of refocus on Europe in a way that was creating uh, angst amongst the Western European members of of NATO. So first, what, what is NATO's military strategy in Uh, the 1960s and and 1970s. I mean, you were just sort of alluding to it there, but I I was hoping that you could sort of unspool that a little more because I think it's really important for trying to understand the divides in NATO over sort of the broader approaches um, to the Soviets.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so NATO's strategy is one based around this incredibly amorphous concept that they refer to as flexible response. And so I say amorphous because flexible response meant something different to basically every single member of the alliance. And NATO kept that strategy ambiguous because resolving that ambiguity would have created so many uh, knock-on problems that it was easier and more sustainable to leave some ambiguity baked into the concept. So in general, flexible response the the core idea that virtually everyone could get behind was that it envisioned a degree of escalation. And, and so by that, all I mean is that NATO would have a, a series of options in its proverbial toolkit to meet the threat posed by the Soviet Union and its Warsaw Pact allies at various levels up the chain. So from limited incursions all the way up to uh, general full-scale nuclear war. And this was uh, a direct response to sort of the perceived failings uh, and shortcomings of an earlier strategy that had been dependent and built around massive retaliation, right? The, The threat of overwhelming show of force. And so there's a long series, decades long debates about how you shift the strategy, whether or not moving towards more escalatory options is going to provide more protection to the Europeans or provide less protection to the Europeans. Because, of course, if you introduce more options, then in the Cold War world, one of those options might be you fight a limited nuclear war in Europe and hope to keep the superpowers out of it, which might sound less appealing in, say, Bonn than it does in Washington, D.C. So there's a lot of, uh, just structural factors about the geography of Cold War Europe that shaped that conversation. But so you have this, this strategy that's built around around this, this broad idea of escalation. And the Allies used all of these like pretty hokey metaphors to explain it, right? About having a, a seamless robe of deterrence, about having rungs in a ladder, about having links in a chain. Uh, but the idea of of connective tissue, right? Options uh, where you could move up up the scale. But a critical piece of the backdrop to that strategy is is really based on a a set of fundamental assumptions about what is going to be sustainable uh, in fighting and waging the Cold War. And so you have a base assumption that because the Soviet Union is a land power, and the United States is an ocean away, the Soviet Union has some clear advantages uh, and, and can threaten Western Europe uh, with a very sizable set of conventional forces. Anyone who is familiar with NATO's earliest history knows that the early attempts to try and build up NATO's own conventional land forces quickly confronted the limits of economic uh, of budgets and politics, right? It was incredibly expensive and unpopular to try and build up a large conventional army, and nuclear weapons, though not inexpensive, proved to be a much more appealing and cheaper option, right? Just gave the alliance more bang for its buck. And that basic logic endures. Uh, and in the 1960s and 1970s, the various allies are facing a whole series of, of economic challenges. I mean, you go through a period in the late 1960s, where keeping even the current level of uh, conventional forces in many of the NATO allies is politically unpo- unpopular, and and you have a lot of pressure to scale back the commitments. And so that that basic logic uh, the economic constraints, the political constraints of democratic societies underpin much of, of the strategy. So
1: how, how how do then, sort of following on from that, how are the, the Western European uh, allies in NATO thinking about than arms control in this period especially because it heightens the nuclear risks and dangers on the european continent given that those negotiations were really um for for most of their existence especially in in this period were really focused on um strategic weapon systems of course until we get into what become the inf negotiations um sort of you know much much later in the cold war but you know in this in this earlier period that we've just been talking about in the 60s and 70s, how are the Western Europeans sort of reacting to these decisions that are being taken by the Americans? And and how is this affecting NATO?
0: Yeah, the superpowers arms control process in the late 1960s and 1970s really puts most of the Western European governments in a very uncomfortable situation. They're sort of torn in two different directions that are virtually diametrically opposed to one another. So on one hand, you have uh, an incredible degree of support for arms control because of what arms control represents. The fact that the United States and the Soviet Union are negotiating and and seriously considering reductions in their nuclear arsenals is seen as a positive indicator that relations are getting better. Uh, it, it arms control becomes the sort of flagship or hallmark of detente in the late 1960s and early 1970s. But if there is broad support for the symbolic and significance, I guess, of of arms control, the actual nuts and bolts of what the United States and the Soviet Union are agreeing is far less uh, comforting to many Western European governments. And so you have, when the United States and the Soviet Union begin the first round of arms control talks on strategic weapons for SALT-1, you do have a lot of internal wrangling within NATO about whether or not they should try to include Soviet medium range and intermediate range ballistic missiles, uh, like the SS-4s and SS-5s, that we were targeting the capitals of Western Europe, right, and Europeans made, Western Europeans made this sort of obvious logical case that if those weapons were used, that would be a strategic event for Western Europeans. But the problem with that is that the, the best path or the most viable way to include those weapons in an agreement would be to trade U.S. forward-based systems, Uh, and, and so it would mean trading away some of the protection that these Western European governments had, uh, some of the systems in place designed to make extended deterrence, right? Holding out the nuclear umbrella from the United States over the Atlantic ocean and over half of the continent, that it would mean giving away some of that. And so ultimately, uh, After a lot of back and forth, what ends up happening is the United States adopts a position that leaves aside both forward-based systems and the Soviet MR and IRBMs. And so you have a much more narrow definition of strategic. And that's how we get to this scenario where then uh, the, the structures of arms control sort of funnel competition into the European theater.
1: Did did the, did the West the Western Europeans make any attempts to actually more actively get involved in the superpower arms negotiations at all? I mean, you know, I think it's important to remind our listeners that you know two of those countries have nuclear deterrence themselves, Britain and France. Is, is do they make any serious attempts to get involved, or are they sort of more or less happy to to let the Americans deal with the Soviets?
0: Virtually all of the efforts in this period actually flow in the opposite direction, which are the British and the French desperately trying to make sure that their nuclear arsenals stay out of these negotiations. Okay, Uh, They don't want to be caught up uh, in in deliberations between the superpowers.
1: And why is that? Uh,
0: I think it really is a, a product of a desire to protect their own their own capabilities, and, and that there is a fundamental imbalance. So the case that they often make is that you know the size of the U.S. nuclear arsenal and the Soviet nuclear arsenal is so much greater than anything London or Paris possesses that uh, that it's it's just not reasonable to incorporate them in in the equation.
1: Uh, yeah, that makes complete sense. So you know, as the Sort of period in the book is is developing and and you start to really see the deployment of of these SS twenty Soviet missiles to Europe. I mean, how how is this? You know, you, you talked about that sense of crisis earlier. As this is starting to develop more, how is NATO sort of thinking about that? I mean, you sort of already intimated and, and talked about it a little bit, but you know, as the Dayton process is sort of reaching its climax in the 1970s and then, of course, starting to unravel. How is NATO reacting to the deployment of these missiles? And how does the internal debate um, within NATO countries starting to um, starting to develop over how to respond uh, to these new weapons deployments?
0: Yeah, so as with virtually every instance in NATO's history, there is a lot of disagreement. Uh, in the alliance about how to respond to the SS-20. So for some, it is seen as a major new threat to the Western European allies. And you have a growing concern about Soviet enhanced power, uh, whether that's political power, um, the threat of blackmail, coercive power, Um, And then, of course, the the sheer firepower of new, more advanced missiles uh, targeting capitals across Western Europe. You have that school of thought, but you also have in both the administrations of Gerald Ford and then Jimmy Carter, uh, a strong U.S. line that, yes, they might be qualitatively new systems, but they are not doing anything to fundamentally change uh, NATO's posture, right? NATO could still meet these threats with its existing uh, capabilities. And so in the mid 1970s, right, when the SS20s are coming online, the first batch of them, you you see this this broad debate about whether or not the SS20s constitute a new threat and what they signify. And this becomes bound up in much larger questions about the fate of détente between uh between East and West. And so even though uh, obviously the existing arms control regime, as I was just talking about a few minutes ago, left open the possibility of these Soviet improvements, uh, it was the Soviet decision to introduce these new weapons was broadly perceived uh, in in many uh, political circles as exploiting detente, right? As undermining the spirit, if not the letter of detente. Uh, and it fuels arguments, uh, particularly popular among conservatives, that uh, Detente had the Soviet Union had taken advantage of Detente, and that that the Soviet Union had used Detente to get ahead. It it fuels some of the early rhetoric that that feeds uh, the sort of Detente backlash of the nineteen seventies.
1: So, okay, so. How does this then sort of impact the the thinking around sort of pursuing what you um, had mentioned earlier in our conversation as the as the dual track decision? I mean, what really sort of pushes NATO to try and move on parallel tracks to to sort of really deal with these new Soviet deployments?
0: I think the biggest. A single episode that changes the conversation is actually another uh, smaller crisis over nuclear weapons that happens in 1977 and 1978, um, which is over uh, a weapon known as the Enhanced Radiation Warhead, the ERW, or, or more often, the neutron bomb. And so, the the story there, to to keep it very short, is. Uh, that in the summer of 1977, a newspaper leaks uh, information that there is this enhanced radiation warhead buried in the budget of a U.S. agency. And very quickly, the news of this weapon sets off uh, really a, a public firestorm and of just concern about what these new weapons will mean. Uh, And galvanizes uh, anti-nuclear activism, uh, peace protests, and the like. And so in the face of this public conversation about about these weapons, about the dangers posed by these weapons, and whether they were desirable, NATO was sort of scrambling to figure out how to make the case for uh, bringing the neutron bomb into the NATO arsenal. And it's an incredibly cumbersome process. It's fraught politically for many of the allies. Uh, The the neutron bomb is very contentious in the Netherlands, in the Federal Republic of Germany. And it takes the allies most of the winter and into the spring to figure out what they're going to do. And finally, they get to a point where they have this really complicated three-part solution. They know what they're going to do. Everything is in place. And then Jimmy Carter decides that he doesn't want to move forward with the plan and scraps the whole plan and to be fair to Carter uh, he was much maligned for for making this choice but uh, I, I think there's a lot of evidence that to show that Carter Carter's decision was entirely consistent with the preferences he had expressed six or eight months earlier but in practice the impression that Carter's decision uh, gave, was one that seemed to reinforce all of the worst stereotypes already out there about Jimmy Carter and his foreign policy style. So he was roundly criticized for being overly moralistic and for temporizing. He was cast as a wimp who was unwilling to make hard choices for his defense. And it didn't help that many of his well-placed allies, um, you know, key allied officials went out and basically said as much in the press. Uh, So aides of the West German Chancellor Helmut Schmidt and his uh, foreign minister, hans dietrich Densher, publicly called Carter in the newspaper a religious dreamer and referred to the Carter administration as a leaderless hen coop. And and so these things all created a lot of tension in, in transatlantic relations, but particularly in relations between the United States and West Germany. And that was already a very fraught relationship by 1978. Carter and Schmidt had butted heads over a whole range of things from human rights to uh, nuclear export policy. And and this is, is sort of one really big, terrible thing on top of a heap. And so I dwell on that episode because it's only in the wake of Carter's decision to cancel the neutron bomb, that the Carter administration really revisits its earlier line of argumentation that the SS 20s didn't constitute a new threat to Western Europe, right? That the Western Europeans shouldn't worry about it. And in the spring and summer of 1978, after Carter has canceled uh, the neutron bomb, has scrapped the earlier plans the Carter administration pretty rapidly moves towards a new policy in which they conclude that they need to, in some way, meet West German concerns. Because if they don't, the consequences for transatlantic relations, for the overall order in which virtually everything has been constructed to try and harness German power, West German power towards favorable ends, that maybe the whole thing will come unraveled. And so they become really, uh, they, they shift policy in order to reassure the West Germans that their security concerns will be taken seriously. And so in order to do that, the Carter administration then very quickly comes to the conclusion that it's not going to be possible to do so if you only do arms control or if you only introduce new weapons, that you need the two to work in tandem to create some sort of leverage. And so, there's a lengthy diplomatic process of countless meetings and consultations, bilaterally, quadrilaterally, alliance-wide, to nail down uh, the, all the details of this this two-part approach. But there really is the sort of kernel of that dual track is already in the Carter administration's thinking in late 1978.
1: So when the when the dual track decision you know eventually comes out in, in 79 how did the soviets sort of react to NATO just NATO's decision making here
0: Yeah so the soviet reaction um is is interesting in two ways it, so there's a piece of structural background that's maybe helpful to, to explain one piece of the soviet reaction and that's that the dual track decision has this kind of crazy time lag built into it. So I said before, right, that there's these two tracks, hence the creative name, the dual track decision, right? You've got the the arms control track and the deployment track. And so the deployment track is really, really complicated. You have uh, plans to station weapons in five different countries. Uh, So the federal Republic of Germany, Italy, Belgium, the Netherlands, and the United Kingdom. And that is, almost entirely because the West Germans do not want to be left alone hosting the the missiles. They want some other non-nuclear allies on the continent to host them. So there's this sort of elaborate burden sharing scheme. But the other piece of the deployment track is, is this weird time lag as a result of sort of where the missiles are in their development, where The Allies make this decision in December 1979, but they're not actually planning to deploy the missiles. They're not planning to deploy the missiles until late 1983. And so if you were a Soviet policymaker or a policymaker in any of the Warsaw Pact capitals, this is wonderful leverage. And so the Soviet reaction uh, in the immediate sense is about sort of moving into high gear to figure out how they can try and derail these deployments that are scheduled for four years off. So how can they use uh, funding for peace groups, uh, wonderful, well-placed talking points, all of the sort of things about a free and open press that can be harnessed towards their interests to try and build opposition to uh, the dual track decisions deployments and, and maybe make it so that it's impossible for the weapons to be deployed. So that's one piece of the Soviet reaction. The other piece of the puzzle is that this comes at a time where uh, relations between the United States and the Soviet Union in particular had, had sort of gone from bad to worse. The late 1970s were not a wonderful time in superpower relations. Uh, and a whole series of issues had, had plagued, had, plagued the relationship between Washington and Moscow. But in many respects, the dual track decision, the fact that NATO sees that decision through and and really makes it formally in December, December 12th, 1979, uh, has some, there's some evidence to suggest that 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 really shifted thinking or contributed to a shift in thinking in Moscow about uh, whether or not to invade Afghanistan in December, 1979. And so, uh, so there's some indications that that actually the dual track decision, that choice uh, helped move the needle towards ultimately the decision to invade um, right before Christmas uh, 1979 because the geopolitical situation between the United States and the Soviet Union now seems so negative that that earlier things that might have stopped Brezhnev uh, and his closest group of advisors from doing so had, had sort of evaporated many of those considerations.
1: That's, I, that's really interesting that they were sort of linking the issue of whether to invade Afghanistan with sort of the strategic balance uh, in Europe um, between the two blocks that I, I hadn't sort of been familiar with that, that deliberation before, that's really interesting. Um, so as we're moving into the eighties now, and there's a new administration, uh, in Washington, uh, Ronald Reagan, um, wins a landslide victory in 1980, uh, and comes into office in 1981. How does that sort of change the dynamic, um, if at all within NATO and sort of change the, again, if at all, the American approach to dealing with the quote unquote Euro missiles?
0: Yeah. Yeah. The, the shift in administrations from the Carter administration to the Reagan administration really changes a whole bunch of the context in which the dual-track decision is perceived. So there's a, a sort of fundamental irony almost about the dual-track decision that it was intended to reassure the Western Europeans and Western European governments of the depth of the U.S. commitment to Western Europe's security and ultimately what it ends up doing in the early 1980s is terrifying most of the citizens of Western Europe that their ally in Washington is actually going to result in them being blown up. Uh, and so so you have this like very curious uh, situation where reassurance backfires almost entirely because it lands differently with a different audience, right? If the message of reassurance had been targeted towards governments, well, those same governments of voters didn't hold uh, quite the same interpretation of what would or wouldn't reassure them. And Reagan himself is is a critical part of that story because Reagan uh, talks tough on the campaign trail, right, talks about sort of depravity of the Soviet system. Uh, We all know the famous quotes from the early 1980s, right, about leaving communism on the ash heap of history, about the Soviet Union being an evil empire. And Reagan surrounded himself with people who were critical of detente, critical of arms control, uh, and lower down the ranks, a, a few unfortunate Uh, public officials who commented flippantly in public about the survivability of nuclear war and that, you know, it would be fine so long as everyone had enough shovels. And these kinds of things, uh, coupled with the the rapid downturn in U.S.-Soviet relations, really contribute to a broad feeling that the Cold War has suddenly returned to Europe. Right, that that the Cold War is now more dangerous, at least from the vantage point of Europeans. I want to be clear: the Cold War, of course, continued to be waged uh, in in often brutal and violent ways across uh, Asia and Africa and Latin America. But many Europeans felt like the Cold War had left them behind. Right, had been sort of insulated from the Cold War in many respects. And in the early 1980s came to appreciate the ways that the Cold War was still very much with them and in Europe and threatening their their security. And, and I think there's any number of ways that we can see that manifest, but I often point to the popular culture of the day. I mean, there are just mushroom clouds everywhere in the popular culture of the 1980s. It's war games, it's threads, it's the day after, it's 99 red balloons, It's it's constant. Uh, there is just a simmering anxiety about nuclear war, and the Euro missiles are a critical part of, of that, of stoking that fear, right? That there, there seems to be this deepening arms race between the United States and the Soviet Union taking place in Europe uh, as both camps entrench themselves with even more nuclear weapons uh, that, God forbid, they might actually use.
1: And do, do the West Europeans greet the arrival of Reagan with any sort of reassurance? Do they think that his entrance or entry into the White House is going to be better for them? Do they think it's going to be more of the same? Um, is that really is that changing the dynamic within the NATO organization at all?
0: You you have some uh sense of comfort at the beginning. Uh in part because many of the allied leaders who had worked with Carter uh, just hope that Reagan is going to bring a little bit more coherence or strategy to to the way relations are managed. Uh, But very quickly, the process of alliance management uh, becomes complicated in in its own new ways uh, in the Reagan years. And so they spend much of 1981 arguing about whether or not the United States is going to actually open arms control talks with the Soviet Union on what by then are being called intermediate range nuclear forces. The Carter administration had held some like very preliminary talks, uh, but hadn't formally opened negotiations yet and the Reagan administration did what all good administrations do in Washington and arrived and then promptly said, Well, we need to study all of the inher- things we inherited. So we'll get back to you in six or eight months. <laughs> but when you have, as many Western European governments did by this point, large scale demonstrations, some of the largest in post war Europe, happening week in and week out, uh, waiting six or eight months is not exactly sustainable, right? You want to show your publics, your voters, that the alliance is doing something to try and secure reductions in in nuclear weapons, to even perhaps make it possible that they don't need to deploy the Glickums and Pershing-2s, or they can reduce the number of cruise missiles and Pershing-2s that they plan to to install ultimately, and so there's a lot of growing pressure in 1981 on the administration uh, in Washington to to start talks uh, with the Soviet Union, which ultimately the administration does in in November 1981.
1: And, and how do those talks, you know, initially go between the the superpowers? Is there reasons for optimism? Are they really sort of stalling? Um, you know, how w- w- how do those look like at first?
0: They go so poorly that most people think that they are a public relations stunt. <laughs> <laughs> so. I mean, you have a you have a structural element here, which is that much of the incentive for the Soviet Union to be at the negotiating table is to appear reasonable uh, and to generate the kind of leverage that is going to stop the deployments. And most Western negotiators are realistic that without deployments of their own, right? They are trying to negotiate reductions in the Soviet arsenal, but the only thing that they have to offer at this point is a promise that they won't deploy things that they have not yet deployed. So they don't really have a lot to give the Soviet Union, and so long as the Soviet Union believes that the deployments might be stopped through other means, there's not really a lot of of ground to meet on. Um, in the summer of 1982, of course, there is a sort of famous effort by Paul Nitza, who is the lead negotiator uh, in the INF talks, the lead American negotiator, to try and hammer out some sort of agreement. This is the crux of the walk in the woods. Uh, but that is promptly scuttled in Washington, scuttled in Moscow. And then the talks sort of settled back into this steady pattern of they're negotiating, but, but they're also sort of marking time.
1: Mm. What what ultimately winds up changing the dynamic in terms of arms control that eventually gets us to the point then where both sides are taking very seriously the idea of actually removing these missiles um, from Europe altogether? I mean, obviously, this culminates in the famous INF Treaty in December 1987. But how do we get from sort of this negotiating dynamic where really nothing is happening Um, You know, they're they're pretty much a disaster to actually then making serious progress um, on this front, ultimately culminating in that in that landmark treaty.
0: Yeah. So I think there's two sort of stages there. Right. One is, of course, that the the situation, right, what the Western allies or the United States can offer is it is fundamentally changed in 1983 when the deployments do go ahead because then they are talking about trading real weapons stationed in Italy and the United Kingdom and the Federal Republic of Germany at that point for real Soviet weapons. Uh, and so there's, there's not that asymmetry or the, the hope that it might be derailed by other means. But I don't think that that is enough to explain how the INF Treaty comes to be, how this, this agreement where you abolish the entire class of nuclear weapons occurs. That, to me, hinges much more on Mikhail Gorbachev. Uh, and, And that in Gorbachev, you have a leader who is willing to rethink really fundamental aspects of the Soviet Union's role in the world, and who sees, ultimately, by 1987, an agreement on INF as a critical part of starting to leave the Cold War behind. Uh, And I shouldn't, I I think Gorbachev is an essential ingredient, perhaps the essential ingredient, but of course it takes two to tango and and Gorbachev, in many respects, needs Reagan. Uh, They have many things that divide them, but they both, especially by the late 1980s, have a deep aversion to nuclear weapons. Uh, and, and so there is a, a shared ground between them, in which a dramatic proposal, where they are going to do away with all of these weapons, everything ranging from five hundred to fifty-five hundred kilometers, right, this whole swath of weapons, that, that appeals to them because they're both uh, so anxious about about nuclear weapons and their their destructive power.
1: So, what ultimately, um, you know, clinch? I mean, you have two leaders who are really committed to this, but that's not necessarily enough on its own. So, what ultimately really does clinch the, the, the treaty itself and, and actually, um, you know, brings it, brings it about because there had been previous attempts. I mean, famously in, in Reykjavik in, in 1986, where, you know, they came close to abolishing all nuclear weapons. And many of our listeners might know that that, that, that falls apart quite spectacularly. What ultimately gets this over the finish line?
0: Here is, is really where I do think that Gorbachev and many of the, the closest people around him are what changes. So, after Reykjavik, they the Soviet Union retreats into the previous position that they had had, which is this package deal. So at the time, the negotiations on INF were part of a larger set of umbrella talks, the Nuclear and Space Talks or NST, and so that included strategic weapons, uh, intermediate range nuclear forces, and then uh, space, uh, which was mostly about the Strategic Defense Initiative, Star Wars or SDI, and so. After Reykjavik, the Soviet position had been to go back to a a package deal where they tried to bundle all of these together. But in early 1987, in February of 1987, Gorbachev makes the decision to untie the package, right? And which, which really just means that he wants to break INF out, that he is willing to conclude a separate deal, is no longer going to link... Progress on limiting the strategic defense initiative or confining it to the laboratory to getting a deal on INF. And that is really I would say above all an indication that Gorbachev starts to appreciate or come to the the sense that time is running out for the Soviet Union. That there are so many things that need to be addressed uh, that. Need he he needs something concrete soon, or the whole project as he envisions it is going to begin to fall apart. And here, Gorbachev's thinking I think is shaped in particular by Alexander Yakovlev, who's a, a close aide of his, and writes a, a sort of lengthy memo in February of 1987, making the case for why they should break INF out of the package. Um, and and so it's not to say that it's a done deal in February of 1987. But once Gorbachev agrees to untie the package, uh, there there is a, a foundation for an agreement that is going to be global in scope to get rid of all of uh, these intermediate range range forces. So I, I would really say that to me, I think Gorbachev is is what changes. Is it's a fundamental rethinking. Uh, on Gorbachev's part that is a product of a whole host of factors, right? Gorbachev, like any human, uh, is influenced by many things. And so it's in part the experience of Chernobyl in 1986. It is in part the changing advice of his advisors. It's in part that they had tried so many other tactics and had failed. And so they are down to a limited set of options left. It's in part the fact that the Pershing twos are, do pose a military threat to Moscow, right? Uh, Soviet military leaders often refer to it as a pistol pointed at the temple of the Soviet Union. Uh, and so all of these come together uh, to make it so that the Soviet position uh, shifts. And, and of course, you know, history is filled with with weird coincidences. I mean, in this product, it's not as if uh, Gorbachev found even among his you know closest circle, uh, people who were entirely supportive of this agreement, but Gorbachev was emboldened by coincidences, right? I mean, Gorbachev ends up executing one of the largest purges of the Soviet military in 1987 because a West German 19 year old lands a Cessna in red square.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, (laughs) That's always like an amazing story. Um, What, uh, What's the the West European reaction then to the to the INF treaty? I mean, is this finally assuaging them that the Americans are committed to their security? Do they think that this is a mistake and that the the West is sort of robbing themselves as, of a critical weapon? What's their thinking about it?
0: So this is this is one of the great parts of the story. I think it's sort of a classic. You know, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of situation uh, where the so the the deal that Reagan and Gorbachev are going to sign and, and ultimately do sign in December 1987 is based on this proposal that uh, the Reagan administration had formally introduced in 1981 called the zero option. And so just as the name suggests, it's zero for everybody. Right? So in the early stages of the negotiations, it's the Soviet Union will bring its arsenal down to zero and the United States won't deploy, uh, so we'll keep at zero. Once the deployments start, then of course, it's everybody will bring both sides, the United States and Soviet Union will bring down to zero. In 1981, the zero option is, for the most part, pretty popular among the Western Europeans. Uh, it's seen as a sort of masterstroke that's going to help with many of their public relations problems. It's going to make the case that NATO wants to defend itself with the fewest possible weapons. It's going to help defuse maybe some of the anti-nuclear activism that is sweeping across Western Europe and North America and beyond in the early 1980s. But a lot of the affection for the zero option is because they think it's impossible. And then... In 1986, when Reagan and Gorbachev meet at Reykjavik and have this near moment where they're not only gonna get down to zero uh in in intermediate range weapons, they're talking about abolishing even more nuclear weapons. Uh many of the Western Europeans freak out. Uh, so and not not just not just the Western Europeans, uh the, the Supreme Allied commander uh of NATO at the time, General Bernard Rogers, an American, uh, told reporters that it was like uh, he felt chills running down his spine. Uh, Margaret Thatcher, the British Prime Minister, likened it to an earthquake beneath her feet when she heard this news. Uh, there's a great uh, interview, I think, in Newsweek from a French diplomat who who remarked that this is why you shouldn't shouldn't let two men negotiate in a haunted house on a Saturday night because they would do. Uh, do bad or dangerous things, and, and so the argument that the anxiety for for those kinds of critics was that it would be the beginning of the slippery slope. It would open the floodgates. You know, pick your proverbial metaphor, but it that it was going to lead to the removal of U.S. nuclear weapons from Europe. That that would lead to the removal of U.S. conventional forces, the troops that have been stationed on the continent for decades, because no Congress would let uh, U.S. forces be deployed with nuclear weapons in their midst, and then that it would even worse lead to the full denuclearization of Europe. And so it's not a coincidence here, I think, that the British and the French are among the most vocal critics, right? two countries with nuclear programs of their own. uh, hoping to shore up the case for nuclear weapons uh, and, and for deterrence. But there's this, you know, there's this bind that these West European governments find themselves in 1986 and 1987, which is, we went out for all of these years and said, we would love to see a zero option solution. We, we can't turn around now and say no, right. That, that that's, That's just not possible. It's not palatable. It's not politically intelligent. And so much as reservations are aired publicly and there's a huge conversation about what deterrence is going to look like, what the strategic and military consequences of a deal like the INF Treaty will mean, happening in 87 before the treaty is signed, keeps going after the treaty has been signed, there's, there's just no... There's no sense that it's uh, it's really possible to stop.
1: I, I, I want to zoom out a, a little bit and talk about some of the uh, contemporary relevance of the story that you tell in this book, because I think that there is a ton of it. and And one of the things that I think is really important to talk about is... NATO itself as an organization. I mean, the, you talk about in your book how this almost broke the entire alliance, and there's a huge debate um, going on in the United States today. I mean, I guess there has been throughout all of NATO's existence about um, whether the U.S. should be a NATO, about our sort of commitment to European defense, and without really getting into the specific politics of that in the present, I was wondering if you could talk about um, the challenges of the sort of core logic of NATO, which is having the United States like deeply embedded in European defense and all of those sort of problems and that, that this creates, such as the one that you talk about so brilliantly in this book, um, because – you know, as we've seen in recent years, when you all of the sudden—perhaps not all of the sudden—but when you have a president who is so deeply ambivalent, to put it charitably, going to outright hostile of NATO itself into the idea of European defense, sort of the problems that this create can create in alliance management and NATO's like overall defense posture. So, is this? Is this core logic behind NATO and the way that the organization is, is set up and has been constituted? Does this still make sense um, as NATO sort of thinks about how to, um, you know, maintain its strategic relevance? You know, which has obviously been vigorously renewed by Russia's invasion of Ukraine in in 2022. But how this kind of the way the organization is set up has really created a lot of these problems. Is there is there room to sort of rethink the way that NATO actually goes about defending the countries of which uh, you know are, are members of it?
0: Yeah, I I think that there is a sort of beautiful thing that we often forget about NATO's history, which is that NATO has never been one static thing. The alliance has always been changing, right? I mean, in its initial formation, it wasn't even an organization. It was the North Atlantic Treaty. It was the Korean War in 1950 that made it an organization. And and those transformations come in waves as the institution adapts itself as a political structure, as a military structure to new circumstances. Uh, I I talk about a few of those episodes in this book. There are many more in the Alliance's history. Uh, And and of course, the NATO that I write about in the 1970s and 1980s is fundamentally different than the NATO we have today, because the NATO we have today is, well, double the size. uh, And it is staring down a very different uh, geostrategic landscape both in Europe and beyond Europe. And so there have been any number of changes uh, in in that. So I think I I would say not to be flip, but there is always space to rethink NATO's mission and what NATO is doing, because that is the very, if one thing is constant over the alliance is history, it's that it will change. And so... There, there is, is definitely space. Now, the question is whether, I, I guess, getting to the heart of the, the matter about the United States and its place in the alliance, the question is really whether there is an appetite to to make change in that relationship. And there, the alliance's history suggests maybe not. Uh, historically, I mean, it's not new for a presidential administration to worry about the degree to which the European allies and the Canadians provide for their own defense. But in very few instances have administrations in Washington, Democratic or Republican, been willing to actually support efforts to increase uh, European participation or Canadian participation, but that's a smaller fish to fry. Uh, And so you, you know, you, you, You have a fundamental question about uh, what role the United States envisions for itself within the alliance uh, and and whether there is the flexibility and creativity to be open to arrangements where the United States remains, uh, as it has been for the last seven decades, the most powerful member of the alliance, but where maybe not just the burden is shared more evenly to reflect the Realities of economic power, but also maybe where some of the control and influence is also shared. Uh, and I think you know we're we're seeing right now in the deliberations over uh, over who makes the final choices uh, and who sort of are the the decision the big players, the heavyweights in in decisions about what arms go to the Ukrainians, right. But, uh, there's that, that power still very much resides with the United States. And that's in part a function of American leadership, but it's also in part a function of how many of the allies, uh, interact with American leadership.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think that is a a really good point. Um, that uh, you know the Russian invasion of Ukraine is sort of bringing to the fore the dynamics in the organization and showing, um, you know who, you know where where power resides and and in some cases it's been I think surprising um, uh, given you know what our sort of traditional understandings of the dynamics uh, are in the alliance, um, but but also thinking about. Um, some of the ideas of which members of NATO um, consider for creating their own defense. And I think that um, that's, that's something that people who are thinking about some of these problems um, should, should be, should be keeping in mind as we sort of think about how to conceptualize the organization moving forward. Um, the the final thing that I want to ask you about as we're sort of coming to the end of our conversation is um where we are on arms control today, um, as uh, folks might know, uh, the INF Treaty uh, is no more. Um, <laughs> the U.S. withdrew from it um, after a- accusing the, the Russians um, quite often of, of violating it. Um, Putin has uh, – that's the Russian president for anyone who um, for some reason doesn't know who that is, Vladimir Putin um, – has – suspended russian participation in the only um arms control treaty that exists between the superpowers today that's the the new start treaty how should policymakers be thinking about arms control um clearly there's not going to be any space for that right now given the ongoing um you know realities in, in ukraine and and elsewhere around the world but are we forgetting how important arms control is for um ensuring not only American security but also um, Western security. and and is this something that um, we need to be prioritizing when there is space to do so again?
0: Yeah, I think that the the biggest takeaway that I came away from writing this book with about arms control is just, the degree to which the common perception that arms control is a fundamentally collaborative or cooperative enterprise is misleading, uh, and I'm not the first person to, to point this out. James Cameron has written very eloquently about this, as has John Mauer. Uh, but it's all too easy in our in in the ways that we talk about arms control in public to act as though arms control is uh, is is just an unmitigated cooperative activity, right? That somehow by participating in arms control negotiations with an adversary, uh, that we are doing them a favor uh, that, uh, or or that it is, uh, you know, uh, going to fundamentally remake the relationship. Uh, and it's going to be the, as the INF treaty was sort of like the harbinger of a, of a new era. And it just doesn't work that way in practice. Often, the things that motivate states and negotiators to participate in arms control talks is about uh, defining more clearly the rules of the road, about mitigating risk, but also about making it possible to compete more effectively over the long term. And when you're talking about things like nuclear weapons, that's expensive. It's a trade-off to invest in modernization of weapons as opposed to something else, or as opposed to not spending that money. And so there are any number of reasons why, why people might participate in arms control talks. Um, I think in thinking though about the contemporary situation that we're in, I worry that often we gravitate towards the cold war and the arms control negotiations between the United States and the Soviet Union as somehow the only model for today uh, and that, you know, so we worry about the loss of the old Cold War arms control architecture and and sort of instinctively move towards those models as, as ways to recapture it. But it seems to me that in, in the current landscape we're in, there's a much broader history that we might draw on, uh, you know, thinking about how arms control was done in an era before nuclear weapons even, right? So thinking about multilateral forms of arms control, like the Washington Naval Treaty, uh, that, that might be better suited as models, uh, or or at least help us puzzle through some of the ways that we might reinvigorate arms control in a, in a difficult time. I mean, I, I take your, the, the points you made in, in the question, right, that it's it's going to be very difficult in today's climate to to make the case for why arms control uh, should be on the table, but perhaps that's precisely why arms control should be on the table.
1: <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh,
0: and and so uh, you know there is so thinking through and and turning to the past as a sort of laboratory to think through how and. How how we could generate leverage? How the United States could generate leverage to bring, say, the Russians to the negotiating table, maybe the Chinese to the negotiating table. Um, I think the Euro missiles have something to tell us on that story. Uh, but I, uh, I I think that there is a, a much larger history of arms control that we might draw on to help us think through uh, the, the challenges we're looking at today.
1: Well, I think that's a great pace uh, for us to. Uh, ended. So um, the book is Euromissiles, The Nuclear Weapons That Nearly Destroy NATO. It is out now with Cornell University Press. Um, Thank you so much, Susie, for coming on the pod to talk about the book. Uh, And thank you all for listening. We'll be back soon.